will and turn to the book of Luke, Luke chapter number two, Luke chapter number two. Uh, We've been in a series the last several weeks now uh, called Do You Need a Christmas Miracle? And we've been talking about the different people who came to uh, the manger or who heard about the Christmas account and what they were looking for specifically. And today, uh, I just want to ask a very simple question, all right? What is the big, and don't answer out loud, uh, what is the biggest problem you have in your life right now? The biggest problem, think about it just for a second. What is the biggest problem that you have in your life? Uh, Please don't nudge the person sitting next to you, by the way. Uh, That would not be appropriate at this moment. Uh, But what's the biggest problem? You think about it. It could be uh, you're out of work. Maybe it could be a physical problem or a financial problem or uh, your marriage is in a mess or you've got a child that's wayward or uh, you just don't know uh, where you belong, where you fit today. And no matter what we need, uh, Jesus is and always has been the answer. And we're going to look this morning at a couple who was in a situation that, if you really think about it, in the whole scheme of the Christmas account, no one had ever been in this situation ever before. They couldn't call somebody and ask for advice. They couldn't ask someone, hey, what would you do? Or what have you done if you were ever in this situation? No one had ever been in this situation before. No one's ever been in it since. But as we look at the story of Mary and Joseph on their way to Bethlehem, it causes us to ask you know, what were they doing? Why were they going here? All they knew is they had a directive from God and they were to follow the message. They were to follow this message. And maybe you're in a situation that you've never been in personally. And maybe all you have is a directive from God. And all you need to do is just follow the message. Maybe that's all you need today. And the thing that you've been searching for, you've been longing for, is right in front of you today. So let's look at Luke chapter number 2 and verse number 1. Very familiar past to scripture, but Luke chapter 2 and verse number 1. The Bible says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you so much for your word and thank you for speaking to our hearts today. Lord, I thank you so much for how you love us and how you look after us and Lord, how you lead us. Lord, I ask that you please speak to our hearts and help us to see you at work today. Lord, we love you so much and thank you for loving us. Please speak to my heart today. Lord, please cleanse me of any sin that's unconfessed in my heart and life and help me to be clean as I speak this morning to your people. And Lord, if there is someone here today that doesn't know you as their personal Savior, or they need a Christmas miracle, whatever it may be, Lord, help them to see that you are the answer that they seek. And Lord, I ask that you please help us to come to you for whatever our needs are today. We love you and thank you for loving us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're taking notes this morning on your handout, you can write down number one, the taxing. The taxing that is mentioned. Uh, The detail surrounding why they had to go to Bethlehem was astounding. We see that uh, the first thing in verse number 1, there is a dictator here that's present. A dictator. Uh, Who was this guy, Caesar Augustus, that would have the gall to uh, have a taxing for the entire world? Uh, Caesar Augustus, that, that's not the founder of Little Caesars, by the way, just so everybody's clear. Uh, his real name was Octavian. 
Octavian was the great nephew and heir of Julius Caesar that we see in history. His greatest rival was a man named Mark Anthony. Uh, that Mark Anthony that was connected to Cleopatra, not, not the singer, okay? Uh, but uh, Mark Anthony, connected to P Cleopatra. Octavian rose to power, was given this spot after the suicide of Mark Anthony, and he essentially became a godlike ruler over the entire known world. He was the first emperor of Rome, and he claimed the title Caesar by adoption into Julius Caesar's family. But two years after he became ruler, he was given the title Augustus. Augustus means exalted one, the highest person in the land. So he was Caesar Augustus. He was the ruler, but even though he was ruling, God was the one who was in charge. God was the one who was setting the stage and he made a decree that all the world should be taxed. And the Jews hated the Romans, which made the situation even worse. And when we look at our world today, we all have authorities around us that make decisions that we don't like from time to time. Uh, we have rulers and powers around us that we are called and commanded to submit to. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 13 and verse number 1, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. But then he says, for there is no power but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God. Now that means that God is ultimately in charge of everything. But he has set up authority heads over our lives. Uh, that could come in the form of the blue lights on the way home today. And I hope that doesn't happen for any one of us. That would not be a good Christmas gift. But when we think about the authorities, whether it's uh, political or whether it's spiritual or maybe uh, authorities in your own family, uh, God has allowed them to be in that position. And there should be a measure of respect given to the office even when we can't respect the individual. We should respect the authority. Why? Because God put them in that place. Uh, the dictator that's mentioned. But then number two, we see the duty of each one of these people. Uh, look at verse number two. The Bible says, And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. Every single person. Not only was this taxing mandatory, there was also a census involved. This was their way that they could keep track of how many people were in each region and uh, certain amounts of growth and how families had developed. All of these things were involved. And it was a normal practice for this to take place. Numbers chapter 26 and 64, verse 64 says, but among these there was not a man of them whom Moses and Aaron the priest numbered when they numbered the children of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. The, the census part was a no-brainer. It happened before. Moses, Aaron, uh, David, Solomon, Saul, all of these leaders had numbered the people, had provided a census to be able to see how many people. But this one was different. The timing was different because this was an inconvenient thing. This was a, from Nazareth to Bethlehem was a 90-mile trip. This is not just a hop, skip, and a jump away. Imagine traveling at a whopping pace of two and a half miles an hour with a donkey and a load on that donkey and a pregnant wife. On top of that, two and a half miles an hour. At that pace, it would have been a four-day, one-way trip to get to Bethlehem. So imagine, this is not something where we're just going to have an overnight, a B&B, &B, you know, Airbnb, and just have an overnight thing. At least eight days just in travel round trip. So this is a big deal. 
So when we look at this, it was a major commitment, but it was also a major inconvenience. And with this inconvenience, remember the baby had to be born in Bethlehem. That baby had to arrive there, which shows us a great truth that all of us can apply to. Their inconvenient trip was a part of God's plan. Their inconvenient trip was a part of God's plan. You know, when we think about our lives today, every time we're inconvenienced, we can know that it's part of God's plan. The things that are out of yours and my control are always God's will for our lives. Because we have no control. That means that God has allowed whatever that situation is to come into my life. And, but how often do I look at it that way? Am I grateful for those inconveniences for, for that time period or whatever's happened in my life? Or do I grumble about them? Do I grumble about them? You know, I don't know why I have to go to church on Christmas weekend. You know, I, I, I don't know why I have to work next week. I don't know why I have to put up with all these crazy people who are coming to my house today. These inconveniences. I see the taxing, we look at everything. The taxing was part of God's plan to get him exactly where he wanted them to be. So this morning, what has God used in your life to put you right where you are today? What has God used in your life to put you right where he wants you to be. The taxing. It was inconvenient. But then number two, we see the traveling that's mentioned. Look at verse number four. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth. You think about this situation. Remember, Mary was very pregnant. The Bible says very nicely, great with child. She was very pregnant. All right? And they're traveling 90 miles to a place that they're not familiar with. Probably wouldn't have gone without the taxing being invoked. But what was the significance? We see the location that's mentioned. The location. They traveled from Nazareth to a city called Bethlehem. On the back of your handout is a map and it'll be on the screen this morning. There's a map there for you to see this trek. Nazareth being up north and Bethlehem being south of Jerusalem. The significance of the town comes with who was from that place. This is the birthplace of some little known guy named David. King David. This was his hometown. But this would also be the hometown of a greater king that would surpass David in Jesus. And Micah chapter 5 and verse number 2, the prophecy says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from of old, from everlasting. It was a community of poor people, an insignificant place. There were no fancy places to visit in Bethlehem. You didn't sit down and say, man, where could we go and see a bunch of stuff? I mean, where, where is, this is not Pigeon Forge, all right? This is not Myrtle Beach. Uh, this is Bethlehem. Nobody desired to go to Bethlehem. Yeah, sure, Jesus was from there, uh, would be born there. Uh, David was from there. But there was nothing spectacular about going to Bethlehem. This is just a common place. But when you think about Jesus' family background, Joseph and Mary were not wealthy patriarchs. They were common peasants. They were cultural nobodies. Not significant. And it shows us that Jesus did not come to the proud and powerful. He came to the poor and powerless. And you might think this morning that God could never use your life. 
God can't use me, pastor, because I'm a nobody. Well, guess what? He was born in a town full of nobodies. To people, as far as culture was concerned, were nobodies. He came to those type of people. He came to people like us. Because if he would have been born in a palace, we would never believe that he would stoop to our level. Yet being born in a manger, in a stable, he's available for everybody. He came as one of us so that he could identify with all of us. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For we, ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Athanasius said, He became what we are, that he might make us what he is. He became what we are, that he might make us what he is. And see, this location was really insignificant as far as their culture is concerned. But in verse number 4, we also see a bigger piece of the puzzle in the lineage. The lineage. It tells us that he's of the city of David, the Bethlehem, the house of the city of David. But then it tells us that Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. See, this is Joseph's family line. Joseph and Mary, both a part of the family tree of, of King David. We see that in Matthew chapter 1. We see it in Luke chapter 3. That there were connections back to Bethlehem by this family. This was their story together as a family. This was their journey, this new couple. This story that God is weaving was their story, just like he's weaving your story today. The, the journey that you're on is your story. The family that you have is yours. The heritage that you have is yours. But what are you and I doing with the heritage that we have? What are we doing with the family that we have? See, you and I can't pony up and get new parents. We can't get a money back refund for our kids. Uh, you can't trade in your siblings. So what are you and I going to do to maximize what God has given to us? What are we going to do to maximize the, li the lineage that we have? Do you believe, honestly, that God accidentally gave you the family that you have? That God accidentally allowed you to buy the house or get the apartment or live where you live? See, just for a reminder, God doesn't do anything by accident. God doesn't do anything by accident. He has a purpose and a plan. Every move that he makes is calculated, including putting you where you are today. Giving you the family that you have. Giving you the sons and daughters that you have. Giving you the siblings that you have, even though you might not like them. Even though that crazy uncle that you have, none of those are by accident. The place you live, the place you work. The family that you have, all of those are by divine providence, including sitting in this room this morning. God has chosen by divine providence to bring you here, whether you're in person or watching online. God has desired and planned for you to be here in this moment, which is astounding and mind-boggling that God does that. See, we see in Proverbs chapter 16, verse number 9 says, A man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. 
the Lord has a plan. And, you know, the phrase we see here, not willing, in the Bible is mentioned twice. Remember, not willing when Joseph said, hey, he's not willing that, to make Mary a public example. He's not willing to do that. And we point to a lot the phrase, not willing that any should perish in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 9. But those are the only two references to that phrase in the entire Bible. Not willing. See, while one person was trying to exclude someone from God's plan, God was saying he wanted to include everyone in his plan. Not willing. See, while Joseph said, I'm going to push Mary out, God said, I want to bring everybody in. Not willing. And see, he's not willing for you to run off track. He's not willing for you to go off course. He has a plan. We see the location, the lineage, and then number three, we see the labor. Look at verse number five. It says, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. There it is. Great with child. Uh, the fact with Mary being great with child did not stop them from what they had to do. They had to travel to Bethlehem at the exact moment that Jesus would be born. It tells me that God's plan isn't always easy, but it's necessary. It's not always easy, but it's best. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, lean not thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Romans 8, 28, For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Psalm 32, verse 8, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine See, God doesn't promise an easy life. He actually tells us quite the opposite. But when we look at our life, He promised us something that no one else has. And you know what that is? Companionship. See, your friends will come and go throughout your life. You think about the friends that you had in high school and the amount of people that you went to college with and think, man, we're going to be besties forever. And you sit here 5, 10, 25 years later and think, man, I haven't talked to them in ages. And you were going to be besties. Or you were besties. But all of a sudden, your friends come and go. Uh, sometimes, sadly, family walks away. But the Lord is faithful. He is consistent. So are you going through something today where you need His continued presence? Maybe what you need today is not that new job, that family uh, crisis to be corrected. Maybe what you really need is Him. Maybe He is what you need. Maybe He is your Christmas miracle today. And we see the taxing that was required, the travel that was necessary. And then lastly this morning, we see the timing of all of it. The timing. We don't know how long it was while they were in town when Mary would give birth. But we see a few details in these verses that stand out. Number one, in verse 6, we see the delivery. The delivery. Look at verse number 6. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. You know, the fact that of how long they were before Mary gave birth is really insignificant due to the fact that she was going to have the baby. She had the baby. You see, up to that time, she had been in the wrong place. She was in Nazareth, and the prophecy had to be fulfilled. So she had to be in Bethlehem. Nazareth would be where Jesus would grow up, but Bethlehem was the location of his birth. Remember this teenage girl somewhere between age 12 to 14, most historians believe, which is mind-blowing in itself. 
she was experiencing the most traumatic event she'd ever faced with her fiancé in a strange place going through all of this for the first time together. All of these details being pieced together in most people's minds by coincidence were all a part of God's plan. All of these details. And it shows us just how far God is willing to go to prove His love for us. William Barclay said, Jesus coming is the final and unanswerable proof that God cares. He loves us. He cares for us. Sam Storm said, The virgin birth alone ensured both the full deity and full humanity of Jesus. If God had created Jesus, a complete human being in heaven, and sent him to earth apart from any human parent, it is difficult to see how he could be truly a man. If God had sent his son into the world through both a human father and mother, it is difficult to see how he could truly be God. See, God wove all of this story together as a part of his redemptive narrative. John chapter 1 and verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. See, Jesus wrapped himself in human flesh to be able to say that he knows exactly what we go through each day. He did that and subjected himself to humanity to be able to identify himself with us. To be able to say, I know what you're going through. I've been there. I know what you're feeling. He did all that for us. He did that to be identified with us, but do we want to be identified with Him? We see not only the delivery. In verse number 7, we see the dilemma. And this is where we finish this morning. And she brought forth her firstborn son. I love the reference to the virgin birth. Brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, Sad statement, because there was no room for them in the end. No room. This refers, this reference refers to Chimam's end that's mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 41 in verse 17. It says, And they departed and dwelt in the habitation of Chimam, which is by Bethlehem, to go to enter into Egypt. Chimam was a man who was in David's inner circle when David was king. Chimam was in Bethlehem and he built a place along the roadside where an inn where people could stop and they could stay as they traveled to Egypt. It was an obscure location, not anything fancy or flashy, but this was his inn. But the saddest part of the story is when it says that there was no room for him in the inn. I've often thought about that experience. You remember before the days of Priceline? When you could name your own price and you could pick your own hotel room and you could line everything up. I remember as kids going into the hotel and asking, do you have any room? And uh, we'd go from hotel to hotel to get the cheapest price. I remember all that. But imagine going into one of those places and hearing, I'm sorry, we're full. I'm sorry, we don't have any room. And, And I get all that. But I also look back to the culture. And I want to look at this statement through the eyes of what it would have been like that day. See, there was always in this culture one extra room. Always. 
say, Pastor, what room was it? It wasn't the penthouse. It wasn't a suite. It was the innkeeper's room. See, the innkeeper lived in the inn. He stayed there. So for whatever reason the innkeeper chose, maybe he had already rented the room. Maybe he had already, hey, jacked up the price three times and said, hey, I'm going to make a a fortune off this night. I'm going to give somebody my room and make a pretty penny. But for whatever reason, the innkeeper, either he had sold his room or he wasn't willing to give up his room. The reasoning doesn't really matter. The fact of the matter is that there was no room for the Son of God. And no matter the reason, either direction applies to us. Because there are people today who they have no room for Jesus because they've sold their room to something more important. Whether it's something or someone. They have made a job and a career and a a focus their pursuit for living. And they don't have any room for Jesus. Maybe they've made their retirement account their room for Jesus. Maybe they've made their family and choices that they've made in their life. They have sold their room that is supposed to be for Jesus. Maybe there are people, even in this room, or watching that you just say, hey, I don't even want Jesus. I want to keep my life the way that it is because it's comfortable. I want to keep my life and I want to keep everything the way that it is because it works for me. And that might sound good until you stand before a holy God one day. And then reality sinks in that you missed a golden opportunity. And Jesus needs a room. We looked at the wise men and how they needed an answer and how that Mary needed acceptance and how that uh, these shepherds needed validation that they were important. They needed to know that they were valued. And this weekend we look and see that Jesus needs a room. And this morning, do you have a room for Jesus? Do you have room in your heart and life For the creator of the universe. That same one that said the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning of that same chapter it said that he spoke everything into existence with his word. He is the creator of the universe and one day, like it or not, he will be our judge. He will be the one that we stand before. And we will hear our eternal destiny pronounced for all to hear. And in that day, the most important thing that you and I could have ever done in this life will be, did you have room for Jesus? Did you make room for him? This innkeeper, for one reason or another, said, no room, no room. Either sold it, wouldn't give it, but no room. And this morning, my challenge to you is, do you have room for Jesus? Have you sold that room to something more important in your mind? Are you keeping it for yourself, saying, nobody, that's guarded, that's mine. But at the end of the day, Jesus needs a room. Will you give him this Christmas season, will you give him your room? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Let me ask you this morning as we prepare for our invitation. We won't be long today, but I do want to ask you a very simple question. Do you have Jesus in your room? You may be here and say, Pastor, I I know that there was a time in my life when I trusted Christ as my personal Savior, and that's wonderful. But maybe you're here and you say, Pastor, I I don't know that 
there's ever been a time in my life when I've opened that room to Jesus. I don't know that He is my Savior. I don't know that I've ever opened that doorway. Hey, can I challenge you this morning? The greatest gift that you could ever receive this Christmas would be the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing that He is your Savior. There's been a time in your life when you have trusted Jesus as your personal Savior. And this morning, I want to tell you how that's done. It's not something that you can do like baptism or being a good person or uh, giving your money to the church or uh, you know, helping your fellow man. All of those things are good, but they won't get you into heaven. The Bible says that we're all sinners. And because of our sin, we have separated ourselves from a holy God. And there is nothing that you and I can do to bridge that gap. And then Jesus came. And Jesus stepped into our world as a perfect and holy God. Lived a perfect life. And he died a death that he did not deserve. He died that death to pay yours and my sin debt. As a holy God, he took our place when he died on the cross. And by dying in our stead, he opened a doorway for you and I to be able to walk in. But the question is, have you walked into that door? See, it's not just enough that Jesus died on the cross. It's not just enough that you know that you sinned or you failed and you're not perfect. None of those things are good enough to get you to heaven. The thing that is missing and that you and I have to do to be able to walk through the door is accept what he did on the cross for your payment for sin. You say, well, pastor, how do I do that? You ask him to apply what he has done to your heart and life. You ask Him to forgive you of your sin, to become your Lord and Savior. And you ask Him to save you from the sin that is separating you from Him. That is biblical salvation. Nothing more, nothing less. And if you're here this morning, let me challenge you today to ask Him to forgive you of your sin. Admit what you are. Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that if I stay the way that I am, that I deserve to be separated from you for all eternity. Maybe your prayer sounds like that. Maybe it's in your own words. But would you pray this morning and trust Him to become your Lord and Savior? Trust Him to forgive you of your sin? Right there in your seat, you can pray a simple prayer that may sound something like this. Dear Jesus, forgive me my sin. Please forgive me. Cleanse me. I believe that you died on the cross as my Savior, as my substitute. Please forgive me, cleanse me, and radically transform my life into what you want me to be. And I ask this by faith, believing that you will save me. That's what salvation is. It's not anything special. It's not a magical prayer. It's a prayer of faith. And if you're here this morning and you say, hey, pastor, when I came in, I, I didn't know that I was saved. I didn't know that I was going to spend eternity with heaven. But I prayed a prayer similar to that this morning. I just prayed, maybe for the very first time, or maybe you did not understand completely years ago or recently. And you say, hey, pastor, I, I prayed that prayer and I meant it. I wanted Jesus to save me. I wanted to know that he would forgive me my sins. I understand now that Jesus died for me and that he's the only way to heaven. 
you know, I'm not going to come to talk to you or send somebody to come and talk to you or talk to you in the lobby or call you out or embarrass you, but I would like to rejoice with you today. Maybe you're here and you say, Pastor, I just prayed that prayer and I meant it. I wanted Jesus to save me. While no one's looking around and heads are bowed, would you simply slip up your hand and say, Pastor, I prayed that prayer. I meant it. I wanted Jesus to save me. I meant it with all my heart. I asked him to save me, and I meant that. I didn't know that I was on my way to heaven before, and now I know. And I just wanted to let you know. I'm not going to call your name or point you out, but I just wanted you to know that I just trusted Christ. Is that you? Could I rejoice with you this morning? Maybe you're here and you have questions about your faith. Maybe you have questions about what your next step is. We'd be honored to help you in that journey with Jesus. We'll have personal workers down front and in the back in just a moment that would love to pray with you, answer any question you may have. But we want to help you today. That's what ministry is all about. And we'd be honored to pray with you today. Father, please bless our time of invitation. Lord, as our personal workers are taking their place, and Lord, we're getting ready to sing a song. Lord, I ask that you please do now what only you can do, and that is speak to the heart. Please Speak to those who are in need of a Christmas miracle. Lord, whether it's salvation or whether it's someone that's hurting, someone that has a need, Lord, I ask that you please show them their spiritual need and help them to cry out to you this morning. Lord, if there's someone here that doesn't know that they're saved or watching online, help them to call out to you. Help them to see you at work in their lives and know that you are God who saves Lord, we thank you for coming as a humble king. Lord, help us to adore that king. Help us to adore you this Christmas season. We sure do love you and thank you for loving us and proving your love by coming for us. You were born to die. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with us, please. We're going to sing.